Okay, would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends in Kalispell, Montana, and Arco, Idaho. We are so glad that you're joining us today uh, for our study. And we're starting a new series called Clarity, Clarifying Questions About Faith. And this first one is very, very important. I find this question that we're dealing with today probably is a barrier for more people coming to Christ. Maybe it's a struggle for you, or I can almost guarantee that somebody in your sphere of influence, somebody in your network of friends at work or at school, one of you students, I guarantee you students, you'll have fellow students that struggle with, can I love science and can I love Jesus at the same time? Can I believe in science and and in the Bible at the same time? How many of you were able to come up with a science fair experience or experiment. Any of you, the, the, Pastor Jarrett asked you to do the question. How many of you remembered a science experiment? Raise your hand. Let me see him. Okay. I, let me tell you a couple that I had. Um, that, and when I think back to my, uh, you know, going to school, it's an interesting thing. My parents were the opposite of helicopter parents. You know the danger we face as parents today as we helicopter parents and hovering over our, our kids all the time. My parents were the exact opposite. I literally can't remember my parents helping me with my homework ever in my life. I'm talking kindergarten through high school, obviously college and seminary. I don't remember. How many of you would identify with that? Anybody else? Okay. Okay. It just And now I did, and we certainly did. You know, they'll... They'll throw you in jail if you don't help your children with their homework today and, or, or your grandchildren. But back then it was different. But there was one huge exception. One huge exception was when the science experiment or the science fair project came once a year. We had to do a science project and had to put it into the science fair. And my dad jumped into action and did it for me. I literally just sat there and he would do my science project for me. And he was really good at it. I mean, I got all kinds of awards that uh, they, they were my dad's, but I received them on his behalf. And so, at any rate, I remember one year, and he used his, his professional life. Uh, first half of my dad's life, he was a logger and a forester. Second half, he was president of a lumber company. And he used that to good advantage for my, sci- my science fair experiments. Uh, the first one we had, um, uh, they called it an increment bore into trees where you get a core out of a tree and you count the rings. You can tell how old it is. We mounted it on a poster board and got a blue, I got a blue ribbon for that one, okay? My dad got the blue ribbon, but I received it on his behalf. And so then the next year, um, we were doing doing one on the human heart. And one of the board of directors for his um, lumber company was a doctor. And so he asked him to give him a model heart, this elaborate one that they would use in med school heart. And then my dad was like this master legendary deer hunter. He was like a legend in our area. So it was deer season. So he goes out and shoots a deer, pulls its heart out of it, and then puts it in a jar. And we put it next to it. Now, I thought they were starting to catch on that I had some help on this, you know. I, I, after all, I was in first grade, and so, you know, they be, and, and so this year we didn't get a blue ribbon, that year we got a red ribbon. But my love of science, even though my dad was doing the projects, I, I just really fell in love with science at an early age. And yet, we begin to think recently that there's this conflict between science and faith, and why do we think that this conflict exists, this conflict between science and faith? So number one, There have been times in church history when the church supposedly opposed the results of scientific study. Now, when I've taught this years ago, in the past, I didn't have the word supposedly in there. 
I felt like it was just the church needed to own up to the fact. It was particularly the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. We had to just own it that at times we did oppose uh, the results of scientific study. But you know, the more I dig beneath the surface, I am not willing to concede that point. I put the word supposedly in there. Because when you dig beneath the surface, I just don't think it's true. Let me give you an example. The trial of Galileo, which is like the hallmark of those that say that the church has crushed scientific inquiry. And by the way, I'm going to discipline myself not to go too far afield here. I actually did an entire sermon on the trial of Galileo at the Hub up in Claremont a couple of years ago. So for any of you that are just gritting your teeth to get through this sermon, just remember, it could be worse, okay? Could be doing a whole sermon on the trial of Galileo. But let me just give you the, 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 the quick on it, and that is that when you dig beneath the surface, you find, like the trial of Galileo, that either the conflict was temporary, it was short-lived, or it was not that significant, or uh, it was more political than theological or scientific. When you dig beneath the surface of the Galileo trial, it really was more political than it was scientific or theological. And so I'm not willing to concede that point. I would say that there have been times in church history when the church supposedly opposed the results of scientific study, and yet when you dig beneath the surface, you don't find that's as much the case. Uh, Number two, however, on the other side, some think that modern scientific study explains everything that was once explained by belief in God. An example of this is Huxley uh, from the 1800s. He said the doctrine of evolution, interesting, he calls it a doctrine. The doctrine of evolution, if consistently accepted, makes it impossible to believe the Bible. And so um, I want to just demonstrate over the next few minutes that science and Christian faith are not incompatible. As a matter of fact, I would maintain that it was the Christian faith that, was, that birthed modern science. It was uh, Christ's followers who birthed the modern scientific movement. Why would I say that? Uh, first of all, because the Christian faith is monotheistic. It isn't polytheistic. It believes in one God, mono, rather than poly, many gods. When you have many gods, there are many different gods creating different parts of the universe, and so you wouldn't expect consistency. But because we are monotheistic, we are one of the monotheistic religions, along with Judaism and Islam, uh, that we believe in uniformity in nature. There's one designer behind the design of the universe. Therefore, you would expect uniformity. Therefore, you can study and discover that uniformity in nature. Number two, the Christian teaching of creation by a rational God of order led scientists to expect a world that was both ordered and intelligible. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes, men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator behind the law. And then number three, the Christian belief in a transcendent God separate from nature meant that experimentation was justified. You see, in religions where God, pantheism, believe in pantheism, where God is in everything, he's in the chairs that you're seated in, he's in you, he's in me, he's in the air, uh, he's 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 within matter, Uh, you don't experiment on that because that would be to show disrespect for God. You're disrespecting God by experimenting on him, on matter that God is within that matter. But Christianity said, no, we believe in a transcendent God, a God separate from his creation. Therefore, it is acceptable to experiment on his creation. Now, to the other extreme is the Greco-Roman world into which Christianity came in the first century A.D. 
And they believed that matter was evil. It was not, God was not within matter, but matter was evil. And so the whole goal was to get matter behind you to be just all spiritual and leave the matter behind, the material stuff of earth, because that was evil. So therefore, you wouldn't experiment on it because it was evil. You were trying to get rid of it and be super spiritual uh, at the same time. And so it was Christianity that really provided the birthplace for science. Dr. Peter Hodgson uh, who lectured at nu- on nuclear physics at uh, Oxford, said Christianity provided just those beliefs that are essential for science and the whole moral climate that encouraged its growth. Uh, philosopher or historian uh, Herbert Butterfield said science is a child of Christian thought. Uh, philosopher John McMurray said science is the legitimate child of a great religious movement and its genealogy goes back to Jesus. And you will find that in history, the beginning of science, Almost every early scientist, a member of the science community, was a follower of Christ. And many of them passionate followers of Jesus Christ. On-fire Christians were the ones that started science uh, in the first place. And, uh, for example, Galileo. We just talked about the trial of Galileo. Here's a couple of quotes from Galileo. He says, there are two big books, the book of nature and the book of supernature, the Bible. Another quote by Galileo, both the holy scriptures and nature proceed from the divine word of God. Two truths can never contradict each other. Now that goes all the way up to the present time. I was just reading this last week, some statistics on Nobel Prize winners, American Nobel Prize winners uh, from the science magazine, the scientific elite. And it, it did a study and found that American Nobel Prizes awarded between 1901 and 1972, 72% of Nobel Prize winners identified as followers of Jesus Christ. It was even higher in some areas of the sciences. Overall, 84.2% of all Nobel Prizes awarded to Americans in chemistry were followers of Jesus. 60% in medicine, 58.6% in physics. And so whether it's yesterday or it's today, uh, you find many, many uh, committed followers of Jesus Christ among those, and they find no contradiction between the two. Science and Scripture do not contradict each other. Um, there are, some have said that there's probably more contradictions within science than there are between science and, and Christianity. Let me give you some examples. First of all, miracles. And in a few weeks, we're going to dig a little bit more deeply into the subject of miracles. But uh, Max Planck, who was a German physicist right before World War II in Nazi Germany, he said, faith in miracles must yield ground step by step before the steady and firm advance of the forces of science and its total defeat is indubitably a mere matter of time. Uh, Brian Lothar has written some stuff that I really enjoy. He says, a humorous story illustrates how easy it is to base an opinion on incomplete facts. Uh, John Locke, who lived in the 1600s, related this story about the Dutch ambassador and the king of Siam, what is today the nation of Thailand. While describing his country, Holland, to the king, the ambassador mentioned that at times it was possible for an elephant to walk on water. The king rejected the idea and felt that the ambassador was lying to him. However, the ambassador was merely describing something that was beyond the king's personal experience. The king did not realize that when water freezes and becomes ice, it can support the weight of an elephant. This seemed impossible to the king because he did not have all the facts. Consider some modern accomplishments that may have been considered impossible just a few decades ago. 
Think about it. A hundred years ago, would anybody ever imagine that today an airplane can transport more than 800 passengers nonstop from New York to Singapore, traveling at a cruising speed of 560 miles per hour? Would anybody a hundred years ago even imagine that could happen? A video conferences can enable people on different continents to engage in face-to-face conversations. hundred years ago, would anybody ever imagine that could happen? Thousands of songs can be stored on a device smaller than a book of matches. Would anybody have imagined? That would have been miraculous just a hundred years ago. Surgeons can transplant hearts and other body parts. What logical conclusions can we draw from such facts? This, if humans can accomplish feats that just a few years ago seemed impossible, then surely the God who created the universe and all that is in it can perform amazing acts that we do not yet fully understand or cannot presently replicate. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes, Belief in miracles, far from depending on an ignorance of the laws of nature, is only possible insofar as those laws are known. We only know what is a miracle, something different than the laws of nature, when we know the laws of nature. Now, here's what the whole thing of miracles really comes down to. The real issue is this. Is there a God or is there not? Uh, do we believe there's a God, that God created the world, or, or do we, is there God or is there not? And as we've been studying the last couple of weeks, everything takes faith. Everything uh, takes faith. You just have to choose where most of the evidence is, and that's where you're going to place your faith. We all believe crazy things. Everybody. Okay, let's admit it. We Christians believe some crazy stuff, right? I mean, we believe the walls of Jericho fell down. Uh, We believe David killed the giant Goliath. Um, we believe God came into the world in human form in Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again from the grave. Let's admit it. We, we, Jesus is coming back someday. We believe some crazy stuff. But I don't believe that's nearly as crazy as believing that everything we see today happened by random chance. I believe that's the craziest thing of all, that something came from nothing. And even if we're able to work our way all the way back to the Big Bang to say, okay, this is how it all unfolded, and it all started with an incredibly dense uh, point of mass at the beginning of time. There was everything was, the whole universe was condensed into that little piece of mass. Here's the question. Who put it there to begin with? Who put it there? And so you have to believe that nothing created something out of nothing. And I believe it takes far less faith. It is far less crazy than to believe that someone made something out of nothing than it is that nothing created something out of nothing. It's all what crazy thing you choose to believe. Where's the evidence? That it just, this all happened utterly random and even this just got here to begin with, we have no idea who started. I mean, scientists never attempt to deal with that. Like, who put the stuff there to begin with at the beginning of time? And so we choose to believe in that which we believe the most evidence falls in that area. We all have to take a leap of faith. It just depends which leap makes the most sense to you. Does that all make sense? Uh, Let me just share it this way uh, from this clip. When I was going through my own period, it was really severe doubt when I was studying philosophy in college. Um, I read a book. It was called A Severe Mercy by a man named Sheldon Vonnegut, and it was a story about um, how he came to faith in Jesus. And he was an atheist. He was a very committed atheist. 
and he began to learn about Jesus and he began to struggle with this idea that Jesus could be God in the flesh and he, he, and he told this parable he calls it the parable of the cliff and he said I imagined myself standing at this cliff and there was this huge gap in front of me and it was a gap between me and God and it was a gap that required me to have faith to believe that Jesus was God in the flesh and he said, I just did not feel that I had the faith to overcome that gap and get to the other side. But this is what he said. He said, then I realized I turned around and there was a gap behind me as well. There was a gap before me, but by God, there was a gap behind me. And he realized, I realized at that moment that it took just as much faith to believe that Jesus was God as it took to believe that he was not. And, and, and that it's not as if it takes faith that, you know, it's, I'm a man of science, you're a man of faith. No, we're all people of faith. We all are basing our lives on basic presuppositions that cannot be proved. Yes, God cannot be proved, but he cannot be disproved either. And so I think when it comes to Jesus Christ, I think what, what ultimately kind of sent me over the gap was realizing, yeah, I needed to believe that this person, this man, was God in the flesh, revealing the unobservable God to me. But I think what made me feel better about it, at least, was knowing that, yes, it took faith to believe that, but it took just as much faith to believe that he wasn't. And so when I got to the point of realizing that either way I was going to be living by faith, um, that made it a little bit easier for me to, to step over the gap in front of me. Now, we often say creation versus evolution, but this is really apples and oranges. The scientific questions are how did the world begin, and when did it begin? Uh, when did it begin? Is it an old universe or a young universe? How did it begin? What process uh, was uh, operating uh, through its origin? But that's different than the theological questions, which were who started it and why did he start it? They're two entirely different questions. Stephen Hawking, who's kind of the Albert Einstein of our time and generation, said science may solve the problem of how the universe began, but it cannot answer the question, why does the universe bother to exist? Uh, science and the Bible actually complement each other. I want to steal a, a quote uh, from Pastor Eric Holmstrom. And, and by the way, Pastor Eric is like a genius on this. You, you students, you get such a better message on this than they're getting right now. Okay, Pastor Eric is the one that ought to be up here. His material on this is just spectacular. I, I just, I had real sermon envy when I looked at his material, you know. It was just like, it was just incredible stuff. And I love this one quote he said, good science gives us a front row seat to the glory of God. Isn't that awesome? Good science gives us a front row seat to the glory of God. Whether you look up at a starry sky or you look through a telescope, or my little granddaughter, Kylie, she got a microscope. And so last Sunday night, we were over there, and she was showing me all this stuff on her microscope. And a microscope or a telescope is a front row seat to the glory of God. It's unbelievable. Um, my daughter, Abby, is legislative director uh, for a congressman from Texas, uh, in Washington, D.C., and he's Lamar Smith. Here's this picture here, and he's the chairman of Space Science and Technology Committee, and my daughter, Abby, runs his, all his legislation through Congress, and here's a picture that he has in his office, and so Abby had told me about this, so I said, sneak into his office and take this picture. It sounds sketchy, but hopefully I won't get arrested for it after today, so she, she goes into his office, takes, takes this picture, and here's the story he tells about this picture. 
The Hubble telescope is in orbit 230 miles above the Earth. There's a picture of it. It's the size of a school bus. Some years ago, its, ca- its camera uh, was fo- they, the scientists focused their camera uh, on a tiny dark spot in space where they thought that nothing existed. So they found this one spot in all of space where they said, we don't think anything exists there, and they focused this, um, the, the Hubble telescope on that. For perspective on how big that spot was, if you were to hold a penny at, at arm's length, and if you got a penny, and I'm supposed to have a penny here in my pocket, and there it is, if you were to hold up a penny at arm's length, okay, just hold it out at arm's length, the, Abraham Lincoln is on the front of the penny. The, the spot is the size of his eye. So penny at arm's length, and Abraham Lincoln's eye, that's the spot where they didn't think there was anything, and that's where they focused the Hubble uh, telescope. When the film was developed, scientists were amazed to find over 3,000 points of light in that speck of sky. Let's put a picture of what they found. Furthermore, each point of light was not a star, but a galaxy consisting of an average of 200 billion stars per galaxy. And here's the photo that hangs in his office that he explains when visitors come uh, to his office. Good science gives us a front row seat to the glory of God. A telescope, a microscope, give us a front row seat to the glory of God. Here's another amazing uh, field of science that's developing right now. Remarkable what they're discovering. Uh, I personally believe we're the only place where there's life in the universe. Now, it's not a problem. If, if E.T. shows up tomorrow, no problem. It just means God created it there. But I'm, as I'm going to show you in a moment, it's just a miracle that it's anywhere in the universe. And, and it's a miracle that's here, but it's a miracle that it's, that it's anywhere in the universe. Now, it's okay. If it's somewhere else, that's no problem. Uh, how many of you children of the 60s and 70s remember Larry Norman during the Jesus movement? He had that song, he's an, uh, un, he's an unidentified flying object. He's an unidentified flying object, you will see him in the air. He's an unidentified flying object, you will drop your hands and stare. You'll be afraid to tell your neighbors, they might think that it's not true. But when they open up the morning paper, they will find you've seen it too. One more and then we're done. Okay. And if there's life on other planets, then I'm sure that he must know. And he's been there once already and has died to save their souls. How many think I should be on the worship team with Jared? Okay, yeah. Okay. okay. So at any rate, any rate, that's right. Pastors shouldn't sing. Worship leaders shouldn't talk. That's kind of the rule. Really okay. okay. So at any rate. <laughs> oh, I hope they don't see that back there. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no, no. Okay, I was mainly talking about myself. I was talking about myself. Okay. <laughs> so at any rate, it doesn't mess with our faith. I am so busted. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't mess, it doesn't mess with my faith if E.T. shows up, if there's life on other plants. No big deal. But I believe this is the only place. And here's the other incredible thing. You know what they're discovering now? Not only is this maybe the only place where there's life in the universe, this is the only spot in the universe where you can see the rest of the universe. Is that cool? So here we are. Let me give you an example. I was just reading last week. An astrophysicist said that they believe now that the only place in the universe where you can see a perfect solar eclipse is from Earth. And so just your mind, it blows it, doesn't it? 
Just to think about it. We're the only place where there's life, and we're in the only spot where we can see what God did. He showed up, and he's showing off. We, good science gives us a front row seat to the glory of God. It's the only spot in the universe where you can see the rest of it, and we're the only place where it is. Nicky Gumbel writes, science is the study of God's general revelation and creation. Biblical theology is the study of God's special revelation in Jesus and the scriptures. It just gives you a fresh appreciation for Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. In that spot where scientists thought there was nothing, he said, let there be. The size of Abraham Lincoln's eye, arm's length away on a penny. That spot, he said, let there be light. And 300 galaxies appeared, each with 200 billion stars like our sun in every one of them. Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Uh, David writes in Genesis, uh, hundreds of years after that, but uh, 3,000 years ago, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord, now he pivots from general revelation to specific revelation. God's word, the Bible, is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And so he gives us a front row seat to the glory of God in creation. But then he gives us his word. And by his word, we more specifically know how to please the creator of the universe. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And so number one, since everything has a cause, there must be a first cause. And what we've been saying is, is that it's easier, it takes less faith, it's less crazy to believe that God created something out of nothing than that nothing created something out of nothing. It's all where you put your faith. Uh, it, Charles Darwin, and I, I always mess this up. I should have left it without the person on it and just said, guess who it is? Billy Graham, Jarrett LeMaster, uh, you know, James Dobson. I'm trying to butter you up after that, Jarrett. I really, okay. It is, and then not let, made you guess. And then who would guess Charles Darwin? 
He writes, it is impossible of conceiving this immense and wonderful universe, including man, as a result of blind chance or necessity. When thus reflecting, I feel compelled to look at a first cause, having an intelligent mind in some degree analogous to that of man, and I deserve to be called a theist, or that is, someone who believes in God. And then number two, the argument from design. Here's a couple of verses that Pastor Eric shared with me that I'd never noticed in Scripture before, and now they're two of my favorite verses. Isaiah 40, verse 25, God is speaking. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. This was written 2,700 years ago, 2,700 years ago. Who created all these He brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Good science gives us a front row seat to the glory glory of God. Here's some um, slides that I stole from uh, Eric Holmstrom. You're thinking to yourself, why isn't Eric preaching this instead of Gladden? Uh, Here's some examples. Scientists have discovered 122 constants or scientific truths that have altered slightly would render planet Earth uninhabitable. 122 things have to be perfect. Absolutely perfect. Here's a few examples of those 122. Oxygen comprises 21% of our atmosphere. You have less of it, humans would suffocate, more fires would erupt. Uh, The next one, if gravitational force was altered by 0.360, our sun would not exist and therefore neither would we. Uh, Next one, if the universe had expanded one one millionth slower, no stars and the universe would collapse. If it had had expanded a millionth uh, faster, no galaxies and the universe would collapse. Uh, Jupiter, if Jupiter were not in its current orbit, You know, Jupiter is like a big brother in the sky protecting his little sister or little brother, Earth. The Earth would be bombarded with space material. God put it just the right spot so that it protects Earth from all the material that would be battering us all the time if it wasn't for big brother Jupiter that is exact spot for it to protect uh, planet Earth. And then the Earth's 23-degree axle tilt is just right. If the tilt were altered slightly, surface temperatures would be too extreme for life to exist. If the rotation of the Earth took longer than 24 hours, temperature differences would be too extreme. Shorter than 24 hours, atmospheric wind velocities would be too extreme. Therefore, the probability of these 122 constants coexisting simultaneously without a designer would be 10 to the 138th power, one with 138 zeros behind it. There are just 10 to the 24th power uh, planets in the universe. Therefore, if you subtract 4 to 24 from 138, there is one chance in 10 to the 114th power, one with 114 zeros chance that these constants could happen randomly. Uh, Even a bigger uh, number uh, for this is by Frederick Hoyle, who's probably the most brilliant man of the previous generation. Like there was Einstein, then there was Hoyle, and now there's uh, uh, Steve Hawking, Stephen Hawking, uh, just an absolute genius. And he's called the atheist who believes in intelligent design. Kind of weird how he holds those two together. But he was an atheist who believed in intelligent design. He calculated the odds that all the functional proteins necessary for life might form in place by random events. He came up with a figure of one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power. That's one with 40,000 zeros after it. Since there are only about 10 to the 80th 
power, subatomic particles in the entire visible universe, he concluded that this quote was an outrageously small probability. How's that for understatement? Life could not have originated here on Earth, nor does it look as though biological evolution can be explained from within an earthbound theory of life. My atheism has been greatly, has been greatly shaken. I want the praise team to come back up right now. And as they're coming up, let me just uh, point to a final couple of things. Science historian Frederick Burnham says, the community of scientists is prepared to consider the idea that God created the universe a more respectable hypothesis today than at any time in the last hundred years. Albert Einstein said, a legitimate conflict between science and religion cannot exist. Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. Without science, we don't have, as Pastor Eric said, that front row seat to the glory of God. But without religion, science, Albert Einstein said, is lame. Number one, we cannot find the God of the Bible through science alone. And number two, science cannot speak to the deepest needs of men and women. Lewis Wolpert, the inventor of the anemometer, uh, which measures wind speed, which I'm sure is being used in Florida even as we speak. He writes, scientists or anyone else without religion have to face a world in which there is no real purpose, no meaning to torment and joy, and accept that when we are dead, we vanish, and that there is no afterlife. You choose what you're going to believe. You choose the crazy thing you want to believe. I, for one, don't have enough faith, and I don't believe you do either, that this all happened by random chance. We believe the weight of evidence leads us to believe that there is a designer behind the design of the universe. His name is Jesus Christ. He not only created the universe, but he came to live among us as God in human form. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose the third day. He ascended to heaven. And that's where we believe the weight of evidence leads us to take our leap of faith. you got to believe something crazy in life. We choose that crazy thing to believe. And all God's family said, amen.